Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're discussing malicious uses of AI. Yeah, so uh, this was a topic that we alluded to last episode, and we very briefly touched upon it, but it was submitted by a listener. And it's a, a brand new paper that comes out of a, a bunch of different organizations that are concerned about technology in the future. And it's called The Malicious Use of Artificial Intelligence Forecasting Prevention and Mitigation. And uh, we just thought this paper would be a really good outline for us to discuss an angle on AI that we haven't really talked about before. Yeah, this thing is like 100 pages. It's almost like a book length paper and it's really well organized so we're not going to go over everything in it you can read it yourself but we thought it would be cool to sort of take their organization scheme and talk through some of the big categories of uh, malicious use of ai that you know might might happen so we're talking now about not ai's going rogue and killing us not ai risk but uh the kinds of things that could happen if a human uh had malicious intent and used an ai as part of their their strategy. Basically, what are the worst things that humans in the near future can do uh, with AI, right? That's the question we want to ask, which, again, a lot of the topics we're going to touch upon today are things we have maybe mentioned in the past, but I don't think we've ever looked at it through this exact lens, right, of what happens when somebody really wants to do wrong and what are the tools enable them to possibly do. So uh, in that sense, I guess this is a little bit of a, a dark futurology episode. Uh, uh, yes, we're looking into the black mirror. Yeah, and, and actually, if you read the paper, there are some suggested solutions and things. Uh, we're not going to get as much into that. So this is more just going to be painting scary scenarios. Yeah, although I think I'm going to be crying arms race a lot, too, because when I was reading this paper, I was thinking often, well, yes, you're right, but also there's the other, the, uh, the good guys will have similarly powerful tools. So it's not always clear that uh, that offense is always easier than defense. But in some of these cases, I guess it is. We'll, we'll talk about it. Well, that's something that I really like about this paper, right, is that in thinking about this stuff, they're painting a world you know, that has AI, again, working as offense and as defense. They, right. they do mention that. Um, and it's important to remember that, yeah, this is not, you know, these are not isolated cases where just the bad guys have this tool. I mean, this is a whole ecosystem of AIs that are, you know, feuding with each other and communicating with each other. And, and that's the kind of complex future world that we're going to try to talk about today. But obviously it's, it's very uh, hard to imagine. Yeah. They do a good job in the paper too, of um, keeping in mind all the different things, not just software, but also robots, not just, you know, the different things that can interact with each other to create uh, some problems for everybody. So let's, let's dive into it. Let's start. Yeah. Let's start with some basic stuff, right? Some, sure. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, first of all, using AI versus not using AI, right, is, is kind of a, a fuzzy boundary to define exactly, right? Because, you know, a lot of the things we're going to talk about are going to sound like, you know, normal cyber attacks, right? So, I mean, what's the difference between hacking and hacking with AI? Well, it's just sort of that the AI, you know, when you're using AI, there's like a higher level of automation. And they kind of explain in the beginning of the paper, you know, what does it mean that you start adding AI to these like known concerns that we already have, like cyber attacks. Um, and they basically have two big categories, one of which is that it tends to expand existing threats. So anything 
that already happens today in terms of cyber attacks right, it gets, get easier, gets easier because yeah. parts of it get automated. You know, parts where you would have to have a lot of human labor might take a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of money, resources of all kinds. Right. Suddenly the cost goes down. Right. Right. Like one example is spear phishing. If you want to target a individual person, you have to spend some time like let's learning def- about them. Let's define that because this is an interesting concept. And uh, okay, so, sure. So spear phishing is like a hacking term. Right. And phishing, first of all, people may be familiar with regular phishing. Right. right? Phishing spelled with a ph. That's when. Uh, somebody fakes some kind of a login or a website or an email or something in order to give you some, uh, get you to give them some information that uh, you, you think you're giving to a legitimate party, but you're actually giving to a hacker. We've all gotten these emails at least once. Sure, you've seen this before, and uh, it works on like your grandmother, but probably you're going to notice that like that Google logo doesn't look right and the URL is different, and you're not going to fall for it. And it's phishing because you're casting a wide net in the ocean and you're hoping you, you catch some unsuspecting you know grandmas that click on your link. Right, phishing works because it's so cheap. It's um, what they call scalable. Right. So like you can just do this fake email to a million people just as easily as to one, basically. Uh, So, right. So that's why people do it. But if you target somebody specifically, like you know enough about them uh, that you can... Um, show them a fake that is uh, more likely to trick them, then that's called spear phishing. Right. Or if you just, you know, and we'll talk more about this later, but if you show them something that's more relevant to their personal interest, which you might be able to gather in an automated fashion via their social media profile. Right. Nowadays, you'd have to do that by like stalking them individually on Facebook or something. Exactly. But the, the premise is maybe a computer could do this. Yeah. So instead of having you know, this very labor-intensive process, you could really scale up spear phishing. And that's just one example of how we there's a threat that already exists today, but, you know, in this timeline of, say, five years out from now, which is roughly what the paper's looking at, and uh, it suddenly might become much, much cheaper to do on a large scale. Yeah, if it's the type of hack that the thing that limits it today is, like, the time of the hacker to go do some research, um, if the computer can do that research for you, then all of a sudden there's no limit there. And we could see spear phishing happening as often as phishing. So that's expanding existing threats. Sure. Um, but then also, as you might guess, there's you know genuinely new threats that you wouldn't have had in the past that come out of introducing artificial intelligence into this you know cyber attack realm, right? Um, or cybersecurity realm. And uh, you know, for example, I'll just give a quick one before we get into details later. Um, something we've talked about before on the podcast is, you know, this technology for mimicry, right? For faking audio and video. Um, I mean, that's something that is really rapidly progressing, as we've talked about, and mm-hmm. will probably be even better five years from now. And that definitely opens up what you could consider to be genuinely new security threats, right? Things that would, you know, because in the past or in the present, even, you know, it's not possible for, you know, most people to do really spot on impersonations say i mean maybe a few right talented actors could pull that off right this is like the plot of like a uh, a pulpy movie or something you hire somebody to 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 act in real life and con someone or something but it's very challenging it's full of pitfalls yes. you almost certainly get caught probably fall in love with the person you're also conning because this is a movie it's not real life sure. you know i mean this just doesn't feel real right it's, it's, it, i don't know if any friends this has happened to so it's, I, it's possible but not really a thing that happens no it today. seems extraordinary basically yeah. in our world uh possible but extraordinary but yeah it, this could become commonplace and maybe it comes becomes commonplace and you just stop 
trusting that people who call you on the phone are really who they say they are after the fifth time your mom tries to sell you auto insurance or something, right? But uh, (laughs) then, you know, there's this time period where you're not suspecting it, where it's very dangerous. We talked about this a little before. But that's where, you know, somebody could get the call from the fake prime minister and start World War Three or something. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get more into that later because, you know, as much as we've talked about that, it's still like just a fascinating topic and, and something I think really is near on the horizon. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So there's basically expanded existing threats and genuinely new threats. Now, after the, the paper kind of lays that distinction out. Um, it gets into three different domains of security. And we thought this was a useful way to kind of go through this. So we're going to do them one at a time. Sure. And they are digital, physical, and political. And obviously, these aren't perfectly distinct categories. There is overlap, of course. But it gives us a nice framework to talk about some some threats. Right. I mean, as thinking about these domains as the locus of the attack uh, rather than the locus of the effects is maybe easier, right? Because... Yeah, they are all a little bit connected to each other. But I feel like you can attack digitally, you can attack physically, and you can attack, like, I guess, the political system or something. We'll talk about that one last. Yeah, so digital, I mean, this is exactly what it sounds like. I mean, this is the traditional cybersecurity domain as we know it. You know, what happens when people use AI to attack our computers, communication systems, and anything that's, you know, digital. Right. Um, And uh, one of the things that they do in the paper, which is kind of fun, is they have some detailed scenarios yeah um what what, like sci-fi stories they're cool yeah and the the, one of the ones that i remember which is very similar to the spear phishing example um is what they were calling automated social engineering right Mm -hmm. so they had a little story about uh you know a, a worker who had a you know a thing for model trains and this was something that you could easily find out by looking at their social media profile and so in order to to get you know a password and and critical information out of this person, uh, they you know set up a fake uh, you know ad for for model trains for like a deal on this thing that this person definitely is going to like, and that's the kind of thing that again you can do now, but it's very labor intensive. But if you just imagine, you know, what would be the best possible deal that would most excite you, and imagine that's the thing that comes into your inbox. It's tailor made for you. It's based exactly on what you enjoy. Um, and it would be uh, possibly very likely that you would end up clicking on that and maybe going going further with it than than you otherwise should. Right. You're... She fills out some kind of form. Which yeah, is yeah. Like poor online practice, but you but know, if she Achilles... really wants that model train deal. And before she knows it, her credentials have been stolen and are off to some you know Russian bot farm or whatever. Yeah. Well, part of the story is also that of course she works in security, so you know getting onto her computer you know, allows you to compromise the entire security that she's in charge of. Right. Yeah. So that was, um, so yeah, I think that's a, definitely a, a one concerning way things could go. Um, another thing that they talk about is what they called automated vulnerability uh, discovery. Right, right. So this is like using AI to probe for uh, potential weaknesses, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is obviously something that hackers already do. They have to find and exploit vulnerabilities, but that's, you know, not an automated process generally. I mean, there might be automated elements to it. Yeah, they might be able to script some steps or something, but they're not, it, they don't have like AI or, you know, programs that can just discover a bug for you. Now, there is something kind of like this that I, I wasn't aware of and, until I, I saw it in this paper, which is this idea of fuzzing. Do you know what this is? 
Oh, that was a new word to me. Let's let's define it. Yeah. So so fuzzing is when you uh, basically b- bombard a system with just tons of random input data, just to kind of see what breaks it. You know, and like you sort of you literally just spam it with random data and you see where the crashes occur and then you go investigate those things. Yeah. And that's an existing thing that happens. And it's actually um, usually not used as an attack. It's usually used to kind of, you know, vet your own system that you're working on. Right. To find out, you know, where its flaws are. Right. The way that AI could help that. Right. Is that it's a little bit crude to sort of throw random data at it and then just look at where the crashes occur. Um, it would be a little more sophisticated if you could, say, throw data at it in a more intelligent manner and see what, you know, exactly are interesting states that you get as a result, not necessarily even crashes, right? Sort of identify, you know, the most interesting responses that might lead to discovering a vulnerability. Right, right. If you can characterize vulnerable states, I don't know how well you can do this from the outside, but I suspect you can. Uh, to some extent, characterize vulnerable states in some ways, mm-hmm. then the AI can be trained to just look for those rather than uh, looking for crashes, which is something the human can easily you know, see uh, and look into. Um, but I'm sure there's other way, interventions you could make too with AI to just sort of improve, because again, that's the most brute force randomized sure. version of this. But Yeah, well, and this is one of these places where the arms race really matters because this tool is also available to developers, Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, if you if the developers are aggressively using the AI to ferret out vulnerabilities and bugs before they release, then it's not clear that that's a huge advantage for hackers after they uh, release. It depends on you know how seriously people take their security, which I guess recent recent world historical news suggests that that's maybe a big problem actually. But if people learn their lesson, uh, uh, they could they could do a lot to mitigate this particular risk, I think. Yeah, I mean, cultural norms are around this stuff are really bad right yeah, now. So, I mean, right. and the authors are aware of this. So, I mean, that's one of the, the you know, recommendations that is kind of ineffectual, which is like, you know, it would be nice if we also just got our act together on about some of these things, right? Yeah, but, it's, it's, it's frustrating to see these dangers that could clearly be avoided with best practices. Right. Yeah. And that's going to be probably a recurring theme here. Yeah. Um. Something else that is mentioned is automation of the hacking itself, you know, you know, various components of that, you know, like improving your target selection. You want to pick a high value target, for example, if you're trying right. to get um, and that could be a maybe, vulnerable target. Exactly. Right? That could right. be enhanced by AI. Yes. Vulnerable too. Right. Um, also, you know, evading detection um, or, you know, also responding to the target's behavior. Right. Um, in an automated way, maybe once you get into their system you know, maybe, you know, responding to what they do in a way that, you know, allows you to further compromise them or or evade detection. Right. I would imagine they have, right, some kind of antivirus or something looking for you. And if you know how it works or if the AI can learn how it works, they could evade it. Right. Another scenario they talk about is uh, basically a variation of a denial of service attack. Right. So this is more one of these um, expanding existing threats sort of things, right? Yeah, this is... Exactly. This is in that category. Right. So already, these are somewhat automated. Yeah, I mean, uh, denial of service attacks are carried out by botnets pretty frequently, which is a kind of crude automation. Right, and a denial of service attack, uh, if people don't know, is basically just when you, you know, you bombard a, a... server with you know just so many requests that it eventually can't handle them right? yeah it's the most old school kind of basic 
um, hack. It's not even really a hack. You're just doing something totally legal, asking for a page. You're just doing it like way too many times. Just, you know, it's like, it's just the, it's the most basic sort of malicious thing you can do on the web. But it's fairly obvious that that's happening when it's happening. Yeah. And now we have uh, technologies out there that try to mitigate it. So you have to be more clever than you used to be about um, hiding where you're coming from and all that sort of thing. So a human-like one would actually simulate, you know, millions of humans or however many it takes to launch one of these attacks effectively. Um, it would mimic their click speeds, right, and their mouse movements sure. and, you know, make it otherwise look just like literally just it was a very popular website, for example, that day, rather than a concerted attack. Right, yeah, that's what you want to do. Make it look as much as possible like legitimate traffic so that they are most confused about how to stop you. Um, and that doesn't even sound that difficult. Um, although, I mean, that's the kind of thing and probably, again, it's an, always an arms race. That's the kind of thing you could stop once, once it happened once or twice. Yeah. I mean, they're always coming up with better ways to do this. And we always hear about new denial of service attacks. And then, you know, after a while they get that particular technique gets worked out. But yeah, I could imagine that at first, at least this will enable almost anyone if they have access to this AI let's say it's like some kind of freely distributed AI software that can run anywhere uh, it would allow almost anyone to do this to almost anyone else which is just a terrible power to unleash on the world it's just like unleashing a ton of annoyance I don't think it's like a really critical uh, vulnerability but it's just would it would allow so much annoyance that well- it'd be well, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because that's like related to that is that's part of what expanding existing threats includes. Right. It's not just, you know, taking, you know, otherwise bad actors and, you know, enhancing their capabilities. It is doing that. But it's also maybe expanding the group of people that would be able or willing to engage in these practices in the first place. Right. By making it easier to do, possibly. Right. For people that otherwise wouldn't have the technical know-how or resources. Right. Right. Yeah. If you have some kind of grievance and you like have the desire to do this, it just makes it so much easier. There's an argument in the paper about it actually increasing the likelihood of people engaging in malicious activity due to like increased anonymity or. Yes, that's also in there. Yeah, yeah. That argument, I'm not sure I'm totally on board with. I understand where they're coming from and maybe on the margins that makes a difference. But I, th- I feel like it's a big enough effect, even if all it does is just increase opportunity. I think there's enough people out there who want to do something annoying to someone else that just letting them is is enough of a problem. I don't I don't know if I... Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that actually that argument makes a little more sense in the next domain that we're going to talk about than it does maybe in the in the digital sure, domain. Sure, maybe. Um, but, uh, but yeah... Well, there's that... already a lot of distance in the digital domain, so... Exactly. Right, but in the physical domain, I guess that might be more of a difference in kind. I'm, I'm more, more sympathetic to it there, I agree. Um, a- another term that was... Um, I mean, I sort of immediately recognized what this implied but uh, another term that was new to me was this idea of data poisoning this falls under two like things that are genuinely new because and and also making sure to think of this as a world where ai is being used both both for a, a, attacking and defending right so one of the new risks that you have is that people that are running cybersecurity defense are likely to start using AI themselves to enhance their defense. But then that AI that they're using as a defender is itself potentially an extra liability that can be exploited and then that can have vulnerabilities. Sure. It's another point of failure along with the security person himself or herself. 
Exactly, and yeah. I, and uh, and um, and I think actually maybe this even applies to to not just defenses, but you know, just general deployment of AI in general, right? There's a lot of these AIs now that learn from from large data sets, often in an ongoing way. Right. Um, and, and data poisoning used against that can uh, basically create huge problems, potentially. So let's define data poisoning, because that's fun to say. Okay, yeah. So uh, my understanding is that basically you're putting in intentionally bad data. And I guess there's various reasons you could be doing this. I mean, you could be doing it just to flood their system with, you know, bad data entries that are just, you know... Uh, generally impairing their their AI process, or you could be doing it in a in a more sophisticated way, where you're actually trying to train their AI off of bad data to do something different. To me, that's like the even more like higher level version. Right. I think you're trying to either make it less accurate or to do something specifically different that you would want it to do. Right. 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 Yeah. So, like, let's say, um, you know, it's like a face recognition algorithm just for the sake of example i don't sure. know if this would be a realistic case right um you know and let's say it gets better by being shown faces right and like right. um so you could intentionally you know start giving feeding it like bad data you know that makes it worse at recognizing faces right but you could also it might be possible to give it bad data in such a way that it's worse at recognizing a specific face now that might be a little far-fetched but i think as an analogy to what you could maybe do, oh yeah, if you if you had a fairly good understanding of the algorithm that they were using, you sure. could possibly retrain it in a very specifically advantageous way for yourself. So one way I could imagine you might be able to train it to conflate two faces somehow. Sure, right? But let's say you can affect the tagging that's going in, then you could tag two different faces as the same. And it will eventually conflate the two faces and start recognizing either one of them as the tag. Right. Maybe. Something like that, right? And then in that case, you could commit some kind of crime and frame the other guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Or something like that. I feel like I feel like you could use this. I, I'm starting to see how a malicious actor could could use this. Now, again, face recognition, I'm just sort of using because it's an easy one to, to picture. Sure. Right? Uh, to, to visualize, but it's not, you know, maybe the most likely scenario. I mean, we could just be talking about an AI defense, for example, that is trying to you know, determine if your system's being attacked or not, right? And looks at different requests coming in and tries to ferret out, like, you know, the, the threatening ones from the non-threatening ones. Sure. Right? And so any kind of system like that, you might be able to, to feed bad data systematically into in a way that uh, creates an outcome you want or just makes the system worse overall. Um, right. So that's data poisoning. Mm -hmm. um, another thing which we'll, we'll go over quickly because we talked about it last episode is this you know, sort of black box model extraction of another algorithm. Right. Using... Yeah, we kind of covered this, but that fascinates me. That was like the biggest, it's like kind of an afterthought in the paper, but that was the most new idea for me in this thing, in this whole thing. Yeah, you said it was interesting. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's two sentences. <laughs> yeah, it jumped out to me, though, because I, I had never heard of anything like that. And that's like the possibility that somebody... So algorithms have a lot of value, right? And the fact that they are opaque uh, protects that value in a de facto way. But what they are suggesting is that machine learning can be sort of turned against another machine learn derived algorithm quite effectively. So... You know, the reason there's only one Google and, uh, you know, Bing or whatever is not a second Google, like there's no Pepsi to Google's Coke, is that it's really hard to develop 
an algorithm that does what Google does. Um, but maybe you could just steal it from them <laughs> by by just sending them a shit ton of search requests uh, and having your machine learning algorithm figure it out. And even if it's not quite as good, maybe it's good enough that you could like bootstrap a product that way. And if that's true, then that's that's really interesting. That's a really interesting vulnerability and leakiness of machine learning that I'd never really thought of. Now, I think in the case of Google, it's probably far-fetched because a lot of what Google does is, you know, it is the ongoing service that they do of of updating continuously their their algorithm rather than it being some sort of fixed thing that you could steal. But sure. Well, you'd still have to do that too. But right now, I don't think it's even possible to sort of catch up to them, absent some technology sure. like this. It just it seems far fetched. I mean, as a, as an example to understand it, that makes sense. But like you know, I think you, if you imagine a smaller actor, this really could maybe work mm-hmm. um, as as a way to essentially steal an algorithm. Um, yeah, sure. Maybe like Uber or something is like the more realistic thing to steal. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so another another thing that's mentioned is um, th- this one is uh, community targeted spam. Did you see this one in the paper? Oh, sure. Um, so it was a reference to the idea of, you know, taking a sub community that has a particular writing style. Yeah. Analyzing it using, you know, and, and basically training a natural language generation AI off of that data to basically create spam for whatever purpose. Again, it could be some sort of phishing attempt or otherwise that is really tailored for that community. Right. Because you have, you know. If you pick a big enough community with some forums or some groups or social networks, you should have a plenty of information with which to train one of these AIs. Sure. So at first you could just imagine this solving the sort of like Nigerian prince problem of like you get one of those uh, spam emails and it sounds like it was written by a non-native English speaker or something, right? Mm-hmm. But then you could imagine this getting really specific, like hyper specific to the point where it's referencing the same movies and video games that you like. And it's like, you know, talking about some places that you hung out recently and posted a picture of yourself at and stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, and, it could get really targeted. And I have some, uh, there's some like nerdy forums on the internet that I hang out in where, where people have a very particular like set of interests. Right. And, and every once in a while a spam email makes its way onto one of those things. And they are, they are very, very obvious. Right. Um, but you could imagine that if you just, you know, tailored it a little bit, um, you could really pull in people in that community. Uh, right. And that's just not cost effective to do to all these little tiny communities. But hey, if it's an AI that's just running, then why not? Yeah, absolutely. Here's another simple thing, too, that you could use AI uh, to do to, like, enhance your attacks. Right. Which is just making each attack, you know, slightly different from each other attack. Basically sure. varying your fingerprint. Right. I mean, that's some way to make it harder to detect. That makes it harder to trace back to you. It also makes it harder to detect in the moment. Yeah, that's a very useful strategy. And tons of little variations. Again, kind of a huge hassle to do manually. But if you automate that sort of thing in a in an intelligent way, uh, that can make a big difference for an attacker. Yep. Yeah, and, and this reminds me of another idea that's brought up a lot, which is this sort of idea of adversarial learning. Right. And this is okay. So this is another one of these interesting terms from the paper. Let's let's talk about what that means, because that's sort of an interesting AI only. Yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, it just means, you know, I think when when, you know, two uh, like AIs are are learning, 
um, but they're opposed to each other, right? So like the defender AI and the attacker AI, um, they're, they're both the kinds of AIs that learn from the data set on the fly and try to improve their algorithm over time, but they're in this arms race with each other, so it creates this adversarial situation. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also used sometimes not by two separate actors, but by the same actor. Sometimes people will set up what's called like a generative adversarial network, okay. say on a single machine, as a way to just you know develop a better generative algorithm. Um, so, for example, if you pit you know, a face recognition algorithm versus a face generating algorithm mm-hmm. in sort of a, one of these adversarial networks. Right. Then over time, uh, you both get better. They both get better. Right. Right. Um, so like, again, that's something that people use now, uh, you know, it just sort of behind the scenes for development, but you can imagine this dynamic playing out a lot in actual attacker defender situations, you know, in the near future. Yeah, I see that leading to like rapid um, advancement on both sides, like rapid detection and rapid uh, uh, malicious uh, growth. Right, and again, and it also creates these these vulnerabilities, right? Where you know, if you can kind of guide your opponent's adaptive process down the wrong path, right. like through those sort of data poisoning methods that we discussed earlier. Um, then that becomes sort of like an extra meta strategy that can be employed in these situations. Right. You can almost, yeah, you can almost use one AI to distract the defender while another AI attacks or something like that. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so some other, like not exactly scenarios, but things that were raised in the paper that I think specifically relate to the, the digital domain for AI security um, is sort of like the pros and cons of centralization. Because mm-hmm. um, the paper talks about how, you know, and the example they use is Google's spam filter, which is really good and basically a large part of the reason why most of us don't have to really deal with that much spam these days. I mean, you don't have to go back very far in the past to where spam was like a much bigger hassle than it currently is. Right, right. And and a lot of the success comes from the sort of the centralization you know, where like a lot of us use Gmail and Google has a very large data set, right? And they have a concentration of labor and expertise, you know, that allows them to pretty much crack the spam problem. I mean, not completely, but to do like a pretty damn good job. Yeah. Um, And so that sort of points to some benefits of centralization. Now, obviously, there are reasons to distrust centralization as Mm -hmm. well, um, just from an authority standpoint. But there's... um, And also a vulnerability standpoint, because if you break them... Exactly. Then you've broken everything. I mean, that's my biggest worry about Google. They have too much. Exactly. It raises the stakes um, if that system is compromised. So right. maybe the system is works better, but if it does get compromised, you're kind of out of luck, potentially. Right. Or at least you have a much worse outcome than if you were more spread out in your resources. Right. Um, it also becomes then a single monolithic target for attackers to learn. Right? Right. So it, it also... interesting thing in a way yeah yeah so the the pros and cons of that issue i mean i don't have like a i don't have a clear answer on that but it was sort of interesting to think about like the cost benefits of those situations right yeah centralization is always a you know a danger but it's also there's many benefits to it so it's always a challenge to figure that out i feel like a similar you know area where you have trade-offs that they talk about a lot is openness right and how much openness to have right um and, you know, they sort of talk about how, like, traditionally this community actually is very open, right? right? It's common to share and publish your your 
findings in, in AI research. Sure. Um, and that obviously is a big part of the reason that the field can advance. I mean, that's really helpful for, for people trying to learn from each other. Yep. Uh, the more though that you start to consider the way these things can be misused, the more you might want to have some kind of protocols for when exactly you should be open and when maybe you should hold back a little bit. Um, that's a really tricky policy area and I'm not, you know, it, it, it's not just policy. It's also just, you know, the cultural norms of that field. Right. And how right. people within that field want to want to handle things. Well, and the incentives are always to hold back in ways that are like profitable, but those aren't always the ways that encourage security. Sure. Um, so there's a, the incentives are not well aligned for the, for the institutions to make great decisions. I don't think either. Well, and let's talk about incentives too, right? Because I mean, there's a lot of, um, uh, like concern there, right? I mean, like, and that's something else that they raise in the paper, which is like, for example, people, um, that like, like one incentive that's in a little bit of a weird place is generally speaking, people who work in AI, uh, have an incentive to be a bit cagey about even talking about the things we're talking about. Right. Or sort of like, right. Because it's a danger of their product. It's the, it's the misuse in a way of their product. Yeah. They don't really want to highlight the fact that the thing they're working on could be used in a very like bad way that might hurt their funding or their bottom line in any number of ways. Right. In the paper, they define, uh, AI and this is useful, I think as a dual use technology, Yes, which the traditional definition of that means like civilian and military use. Right. Can it be used to make a gun or a bomb and can it be used to make do something on a farm or something. But I think they mean that more broadly to just mean that there are beneficial and malicious uses that any individual or, or organization could undertake. Um, and that there's a, there's just an essential general purposeness to most of these automated technologies that they can be a, a turn to, to either kind of, of end. Uh, and that that should be just acknowledged up front by the technologists and by the culture is part of their argument, which I agree with. I mean, computers are this way, obviously, and um, that's why we have things like hacking laws. Um, I don't always agree with the way those are written, but I think we need to have something on the books. Uh, I agree with that. Um, And I think, yeah, we need to treat this societally like it is uh, the powerful and dangerous thing that it is, that it can be turned to good and it should be allowed for that, but also that if you do bad things with it, there should be ways to... um, to punish you, and, and if there's ways to just avoid, you know, those possibilities without totally crippling the technology, we should look into those. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah, yeah. And that, that to me almost might be the single biggest point that I feel like they really are, are trying to leave you with in this paper, which is the dual use point, right? Like, just if they, I feel like if this paper does nothing else but sort of shift the conversation to just acknowledging that these things have a as you know, these risks as well as rewards. Um, right. And it seems like everyone's incentivized to ignore that because you have doomsayers who just want to talk about the risk and you have technologists who are trying to sell you this thing who only want to talk about the reward, but nobody really seems to want to be honest about it. Um, well, as we know, a lot of the doomsayers are really focused on the more far-fetched scenarios that we've discussed in the past about, you know, the self-aware AI taking over. Right. Whereas right. this is much more grounded and maybe a little bit harder to talk about. Uh, but, um, we're talking five years out is basically like what, what this paper is looking at. So there, it's much more pressing. Right. Yeah. This is a world that's almost certainly coming soon. And of course we have dangers from bad actors already, but uh, like the paper says, this expands both the, um, the pool of people who have access to, uh, to technology that can do bad and also potentially even expanding, um, 
the, the number of people who'd be willing to do something bad uh, if they can do it using these technologies. Another uh, thing relating to incentives, right, is that one of the things you might do if you wanted to crack down on this sort of misuse of AI and, and try to slow it is to think about the incentives of the attackers, for example, right? Like how can you disincentivize them? And the main way you traditionally do that was with severe punishments, right? I mean, that's how society generally handles crimes. Right. Um, the problem here is that uh, one of the things that the AI introduces into the equation um, is it makes these crimes harder to attribute to who actually committed them, which is already actually kind of an issue in cybersecurity in general. I mean, I don't, that kind right. of predates the use of AI, although AI might make that worse. Right, right. I mean, anonymity is a, is a feature of a lot of hacking, and uh, this just makes it a bit easier to hide your tracks um, through deploying some kind of complex web of connections. You know, I mean, usually the way you hide yourself uh, when you're hacking is basically by bouncing your signal all around and making it confusing where it came from. This will, this will make that easier to do n sort of no matter what specific, you know, um, technology you're using. Yeah. I mean, it's, if once, if you make something that once you deploy it, um, and I suppose this is another thing to talk about, right? Is that, um, like you could write um, some code that, you know, doesn't actually need your communication to function, right? Sure, you know? that's possible now. I you mean, that is possible. AI for that. No, no, that is possible now. And I, in fact, arguably what you people do that now, you could call that AI. This is where the sort of like boundary between, you know, sort of dumb automation and what you get to call AI is a little bit fuzzy here. Sure, but right? like Stuxnet is that way. It didn't have any communication with its authors. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of like the textbook example. We should maybe explain a little bit what that is. If you're not uh, familiar with Stuxnet, I feel like everyone's heard of it by now, but it, it was the virus that uh, set back the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, somehow it was delivered by USB key onto some Windows 95 computers or something that were running their centrifuges, and it just sat there and quietly ran them at the wrong speed and broke them all for some time before it was discovered. Exactly, but it required no further action. It didn't, like, those computers... The thing about this method is, like, the computers that you infect, if you can make the initial infection, do not have to be on the network. Right. They were air-gapped. Those computers exactly. were not on the network, uh, and they thought that was protecting them, and to some extent it was, but somebody got in there with a, with a USB drive, I guess. So, I mean, that's... And so that kind of, you know, like, AI that could control, you know, an attacker to sort of make its own decisions in a more sophisticated way, perhaps, than, than Stuxnet, basically just, like enhancing that ability to maybe make judgment calls on the fly about what to do. I mean, I feel like you've seen this in hacker movies. Right. Often it's it's much more advanced in the in the hacker movies than it actually currently is in but uh you know yeah. where where the virus appears to evolve and and respond to the people trying to interact with it. Yeah, I think some of what we're saying here is that like hacker movies come true because hacker movies come true. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that stuff was nonsense when it was written. But yeah, it does seem like uh, this sort of machine learning driven uh, AI could approach those kinds of um, abilities to analyze the system in real time and rewrite itself or, or re, you know, reorient its, its behavior in order to be more effective. Well, and also that same kind of technology, um, c coming back to where we were earlier, could you know, enhance anonymity. Um, right. Because if you release something and then it sort of operates on its own for a while... Again, you're creating like a larger gap between yourself and the actual damage that's caused. Right, right. Makes it less obvious where it came from, basically. Yeah. Um, but it, and and going back again to incentives, um, 
So they, they talk about in the paper how, okay, one problem is it's a little bit hard to attribute these crimes, which means that punishment used to disincentivize it is maybe not going to work as well as you'd hope. Um, other concerns are that the kinds of people who might, might actually have good information on who did a crime and could attribute it uh, may not want to you know reveal a source or method uh, uh, as to how they know that, right? Because that itself could compromise security. I wasn't totally sure how that would work, but that was an issue that they raised in the paper. Okay. Does that uh, make sense? I'm not sure exactly. I mean, that seems true in a general sense, but I'm not sure how that's specially true here, but sure. I mean... Well, the other one, the next point I think is much more obviously true, which is that uh, certain entities may not want to see other entities punished because they want they don't want to create precedent of punishment for something they enjoy doing themselves. Right. Right. Well, which is, is a, a perennial problem with hackers. Yeah, yeah. Where they don't necessarily want to turn in even malicious... Uh, people because hacking is fun and it's the kind of same dynamic that you like might sometimes like see in a society with a totally different issue with of corruption right which is like you know one corrupt official may not want to like punish their their predecessors like past corruptions because then they don't get to do the corruption they want to do yes right so it's just like you you know you don't want to create these precedents um right but anyways, let's move now from digital. Right. To the, let's the, move into the next domain. The next domain is the physical domain. Okay. Um, so this is not on your computer anymore. Now we're talking about ways AI could uh, cause harm in the physical world. And of course, computers are still involved. But uh, you know, as we've talked about, there are many ways in which computers are now operating physical things, self-driving cars being a very convenient example. But right. there's many, many more that we'll expect to have. Right. So they're focused on the kind of uh, AI driven, um, devices that are out in the world, such as, uh, uh, robots, home robots and, uh, self-driving cars, things like that. Yeah. And so one of the scenarios that they talk about is, uh, basically repurposing commercial systems. Yeah. And the story, the little story they tell is one about a cleaning robot, right? So like, this one's also like a political story, right? This is the, the assassination. Yeah, yeah. This this actually this is a pretty good little like movie like, plot story. Yeah. yeah, I liked this story. So this is like a Roomba, basically, or it's a sweeping robot. It's like an advanced Roomba from like you know five ten years. Yeah, from now. super Roomba, and it it waits until the other Roombas are like done cleaning, and then it goes and it makes it starts uh, zipping around, uh, and it sees the minister. Well, like sneaks into the garage. Like, oh yeah, where they, like in. at night and like parks itself with the other Roombas, like you know. Right, that's how it infiltrates in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So there's one Roomba that doesn't belong, but it looks like all the others. Nobody notices. It sneaks in, and then it joins in on the cleaning routine. Joins in the cleaning, and then when it makes. Uh, visual contact with the target it like sweeps its way over to the target and then there's a there's an explosive inside and it blows up yeah once it has the ambassador in its sights or the, whatever yeah, the minister or whatever it was yeah, yeah. yeah so it that's a really fun little story um and it's not that different from like when we talked about the police robot that they used um on that uh, sniper mm-hmm. it's not that different from what the police did with that they basically delivered uh, a, a homemade bomb to this guy and then detonated it, you know, remotely. Um, they just used the, the robot to walk the bomb over. I mean, really? <laughs> uh, so that's not, this is just a small evolution of that. You could definitely see this being a strategy for, you know, assassination or attack 
But there's lots of interesting implications to that story, right? Mm-hmm. One is which is, you know, when you have sort of a proliferation of robots everywhere and we get used to that and we're used to trusting them. Right. Um, cleaning, seeing a cleaning robot is not a big deal. Um, then that's a big vulnerability that exists in society all of a sudden. I mean, the other interesting element is that this shows how extremely targeted these things can be. And this is something uh, we haven't talked about yet, but is true across all these domains, Yeah, which is that AI enables you to make very targeted attacks, in this case, literally using facial recognition to assassinate a specific person. Right. I mean, that's something that you really needed a human assassin to do before, right? Right. Recognize the face and then kill the right person. Um, There's, again, there's like plots based on that going wrong. Like that can go wrong for humans if just like someone's wearing a hat or, you know, like it doesn't take a lot to screw that up. But you can imagine a computer being as good or even better uh, than a human at it uh, because it could have more than one uh, method of trying to determine identity. Uh, besides just looking at the face. And uh, yeah, you could imagine very targeted uh, drone killings, right? That's in the paper. Um, Combine facial recognition with existing uh, drone technology, mm-hmm. and you could basically have um, roving uh, shoot-to-kill orders where just like any drone that happens to come in contact with a criminal or whatever, I hope it's a criminal, Uh, <laughs> uh they just well, get shot. You know, I hope it's not a political dissident uh, or something. <laughs> well, since we're talking about malicious uses of AI today, I think I think it's it's not a criminal. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Then it's definitely not a criminal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's either a citizen and they're being targeted by their state, or it's like a a person who's being targeted by a, a criminal or a terrorist group or something like that. And uh, yeah, so they could just get shot the second that their face gets recognized. You know. Well, and I think the other thing about, you know, both these scenarios, the the cleaning robot that explodes and, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, drone assassin. Right. Is that they highlight uh, this point of, you know, how separated the attack can be, you know, in time and space from the attacker themselves. I mean, for example, the cleaning robot could infiltrate, infiltrate the building, you know, weeks ahead of the minister or the target showing up at that building. Yep. And just be, you know acting as a normal cleaning robot for a very long time. Um, second, I think this does go to the, the, I think this more strongly supports the point that you brought up earlier, which is that if you are going to kill somebody and maybe you're not the kind of person that normally could follow through with a murder, but like you're going to deploy this machine that kind of does it for you and you don't really have to be there. You don't necessarily even need to, you know, watch via video camera. I mean, current, modern day drone operators actually have to still sort of observe what they're doing and still can have, you know, things like PTSD as a result. But this allows you to maybe, you know, deploy something and then, you know, read a headline a week later that, you know, it did the job for you. And like, you know, maybe that enables a larger group of people to be comfortable with murder, which would be obviously a bad outcome, I would say. Yeah, it's hard for me to gauge whether that's really true because it doesn't strike me as any less bad to do it by like tapping a person's face on a screen what's well, that ethically less bad no but, but i guess maybe people wouldn't have the same visceral reaction um so yeah i don't know i i'm i'm a little skeptical that that's the biggest problem here but i can definitely see that it's an issue i think it's definitely a factor yeah yeah i agree with that um 
in in a and it feels like more of a factor here than it did in the digital domain. De- definitely, uh, the digital domain is already as I think separate as as it needs to be to see any effect of that that we would see. And I guess you know people are dicks online, so there is some evidence that this effect exists at least at some low level. Uh, not, but whether it exists at that extreme level of murder, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think. It, Drone pranks are going to be common, <laughs> like people being dicks in the physical world using drones because it is now cheap and anonymous for them to, to do so. Or just like drone theft, right? I mean, that's drone not as theft. bad as murder if you want to like, you know, yeah. rob a place with a great, I mean, you might not be comfortable doing that yourself, especially just because you're putting yourself at risk if you, you know, go into an armed robbery situation. But if you can send a drone in to do it for you, sure, you might be more apt to give that a shot. Sure. Yeah. I mean... I'm not sure exactly how drone theft works or whatever and what the, you know, uh, limits Hand of that over would the be. money. That's how it works. Yeah, it's a robot voice. You could, you could picture it. Hand over the money. That's funny. Uh, I mean, obviously they have the advanced, you know, speech synthesis, so they could, it could have yeah, like I a... imagine them batting the drone out of the sky though. I mean, it's... It's uh, it's kind of a vulnerable thing. I mean, I guess it could have guns on it. Yeah, it's got to have a gun on it. Yeah, it doesn't gonna, really work. Right? Yeah, you're gonna have to. Or shoot. look like it has a gun on it. That's the thing. Maybe just like if a drone came in and was like, "I have a bomb." <laughs> Again, it doesn't have to talk like this. I mean, it could talk like a celebrity, you know, or whatever. But I feel like why might as well make it robotic if it's, sure. you're not trying to impersonate someone. Sure, it lets everyone know. Yeah. Um. You know, maybe it doesn't have a bomb, but you know, if a drone flew into your store, looks like a bomb. Yeah, would you like fuck with that? Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I guess the first time, definitely not. But I guess you know, after a while, you'd find out if they were faking it. Put the money in my shoot. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, But I, yeah, it definitely does make sense that you'd be less you know if versus like killing someone with your bare hands pressing a button has got to be easier um so (laughs) another scenario that's in there um going back to murder yeah uh is using uh like taking someone who's low skill at something and making them high skill and the example that they give is uh for example like a self-aiming long-range sniper rifle (laughs) yes right so if you you know apply ai to to aiming of a gun i mean you know your average person you know, can't make that shot from the book suppository. Right. Uh, depository? Book depository. Book depository. Yeah, book suppository would be something, <laughs> That'd be something far less comfortable. Completely different. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, <laughs> but your average person couldn't make that shot, but now maybe your average person can, right? With some crazy new aiming attachment for your gun. Right, right. Some kind of face tracking aimer thing where you sort of tap the face and it does the rest or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. And of course, yeah, targeting in general seems like it could just be made like commodity. Like anyone mm-hmm. can target anything, um, with this technology. And then, uh, yeah, deploying things like at a long range or, uh, uh, also, so, you know, anything that involves planting something ahead of time or, um, or, you know, being otherwise asynchronous in time would be easier also things that would be really complex to control manually like a whole giant swarm of drones right are things that can be accomplished maybe only by one person right if that person also is using ai to aid in the process right i mean again one person even groups of people can't really do swarms of drones it's like too complex for oh yeah i mean it'd be so easy for them to collide with each other right if they're all you know communicating and and using a joint ai program 
that becomes possible. And in fact, that's something that's that's being developed. So yeah, uh, so yeah, swarming. Um, that's kind of a frightening one when swarming you really picture it. <laughs> robo bees. Yeah, yeah. Swarming like polonium tipped robo bees coming soon to a political assassination near you. <laughs> I mean, this always makes me think of like uh, in those like. David Marusek books. I don't know if David Marusek is ever going to write another book in that series that starts with Counting Heads. I don't know. But like, David Marusek, if you're listening to this podcast, write another book. Well, I think he is writing books. I just don't think he's working on that series, which depresses me. But mm. um, like the cities in that book are like basically domed cities, and they're you know they're not domed because they're on Mars. They're domed because literally outside the cities, there's just like rogue. Like, like nano, drones, like uh, everywhere. Hell, everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I vaguely remember there's like an attack by one of them in one of the books, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody gets like And that one's like the size of a bee. Yeah. Which is like, you know, it gets, again, if you miniaturize these things, they get even more disturbing. So <laughs> let's hope that that's, uh, that the arms race favors the defense there. But actually, again, here's an interesting point about the physical domain versus the digital domain. Yeah. Physical domain attacks can literally happen anywhere in physical space. Yes. Whereas in the digital domain, you have sort of these, you know, these key nodes that you can defend against, right? Especially if you have a certain amount of centralization with certain services, like we talked about earlier, right? Mm. You have specific places like gates that you can defend in the digital domain. Now, there's not that there aren't challenges in the digital domain, but in the physical domain to like secure an area, right? is is actually a lot more difficult, right? I mean, the physical world is just more porous in some senses. Right. Most of the de facto security of the physical world really is because of people, like because you need a human being to whatever, pilot a, uh, a vehicle or march onto a piece of property or otherwise accomplish something in your attack. And if uh, autonomous drones can fill in for people, uh, at, a, at a low price, um, e- 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 you know, even if they are only doing a simple task like shooting or something like that, they don't have to be doing all the things people would do. Uh, they can, the physical, the de facto physical security of the world, like, drops immensely. I mean, I think we're already on this trajectory, right? I think, like, our our modern reckoning with, like, terrorism is that you just can't secure, like, public spaces, really, without destroying them. Like sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, the the discussion around school shooting is actually kind of a natural precursor to this conversation because it's a similar dynamic, right? Sure, very similar dynamic where uh, one person can do a lot of harm. It's a very charged space. The school or the the public square is another charged space, and uh, you know, somebody blowing them up in the square, blowing themselves up in the square, can do a lot of harm. Same thing, like that is just going to get more and more extended to more and more people through this technology. So everywhere becomes like a school that could have a school shooting in it, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I that, mean, that's basically, and, and if you want a preview of what kind of fear level we're going to be experiencing in our culture over this, <laughs> like just imagine that everywhere you go is a, is a school that has recently had a shooting and that's what the world's going to feel like. Well, and we've <laughs> talked about this before, but you know, uh, you know, better weaponry in general, that weaponry that goes beyond, you know, just guns, um, you know, is going to create potentially tremendous pressure, you know, to control this, the spread of this weaponry. 
Um, because again, the fear level could possibly get so high if we don't, you know, have some good way to, to, <laughs> to protect ourselves. Yeah. One of the main things that I thought over and over again, as I was reading this paper was, oh yeah, this is going to justify so many draconian policies, some of which will be, I think, called for actually, uh, but many of which probably won't be, or will be overstepping what's called for because, there is such a high, um, you know, tail risk of destruction uh, with with the whole the whole kind of uh, uh, spectrum of technologies that we're discussing here. Uh, one bad actor. I mean, they're all technologies where like one person can cause mass havoc. Right. Right. You well, it's not even just that dynamic too. It's like like imagine. That you are a target, right? Sure. If you're a target in the digital space, right, just to really draw this distinction again, right? Yeah. Like if your files are a target, you put it on an air-gapped computer, right? Yeah. And, and just to define air-gap, which we referenced earlier, that means it's basically not on a network with any other devices. Right. Um, you make sure, you know, only one person has access to it, and you make sure that person doesn't get, you know, fished or socially engineered into compromising that machine mm-hmm. right um but if someone's after you in the physical world and there's literally an endless stream of drones that recognize your face coming after you i mean i guess you can like sit in a bunker all day but like i mean you'd have to have a lot of resources to be able to afford that i mean if you're a, if you're a president sure right right but if you're an average person with average resources i mean what are you going to do about that Right, right. I mean, you just be vulnerable literally whenever you uh, step outside your house or or even to your window, you know? Yeah. Um, and when there is this much um, potential destruction that could be caused by one person slipping through the cracks, the argument that governments and other powerful groups will make for surveillance and other technologies to try to... Uh, anticipate and contain um, these things uh, will just be, I think, very strong. Um, yeah, and actually that that scaling of one person being able to do a lot of damage applies to all the domains, actually, yeah. not just the physical. Yeah. Um, I think the physical domain, though, is it does have a special uh, resonance in this idea of sort of like public fear that we're talking about now yeah. because... Yeah. Like the physical spectacle of, say, like a swarm of drones attacking a crowd is going to stick in people's minds in the way that like, oh, like, you know, our Internet in the, our area went down for a couple of days doesn't have the same like visceral right. feeling. Or like Equifax lost everybody's personal. Yeah, data. that's real disturbing. And like, but like you'll feel but the effects of that, like maybe yeah. years later. And yeah. You know, it's not the same. No, it's not the same. You're right. It's very abstract. You don't you know, it's not visceral like, um, you know your friend getting mowed down by a drone or something like that, or a drone, you know, blowing up in a building. Um, yeah. The, the physical security element of it, I think is going to lead to some pretty poor political outcomes. Basically. I think there's, there's no two ways around that. Well, and so some of the things that would maybe, um, you know, some of the things that you might do, right. And these are talked about in the paper, some of the points of control, they call them, would be, say, the hardware manufacturers, right? Um, 
you know, it's sort of, it depends how that unfolds, right? Like how many manufacturers of these things there will be. It's kind of logical to expect that it'll be pretty distributed. But if you have fewer right. manufacturers, you can, you can put some pressure on them. Well, if it's a software like Google that where one company provides the same product to everyone, that's much easier to put some pressure on than if it's um, like a hardware like that's being, you know, like drone hardware. Uh, those are made all everywhere. And, you know, obviously uh, terrorists have used drones for right. things already. So, I mean, it's it's impossible basically to keep uh, drones out of people's hands. They're too cheap. Uh, and they're and they're not specialized enough. They're made out of off-the-shelf stuff. So uh, it depends on what kind of technology it is. But yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there are some ways in which you know controlling the, the supply chain of hardware is potentially easier than for software. Um, it just, but it really does depend on the specific technology. Obviously, drones again are cheap. But right. Well, uh, yeah, and the software depends on whether it's a centralized uh, provider. Right. Because they they can be if it's if it's distributed software, if it's uh, the Linux operating system or something. Well, then forget it. <laughs> but then there's also the hardware distributors, which is a point of control, right? right. Which is a, sort of a later point in the chain, right. right? When, you know, where things are sold. I mean, this is, again, this is very similar to the gun control discussion. I mean, that's a situation where we try to con control or we argue about what, how much we should control certain types of hardware. Right. Here in the be used States, for we don't do too much controlling. <laughs> we do more arguing. Um, but, uh, right. Uh, in other countries, they yeah, control yeah. the uh, the you know particular technologies that are and are not allowed to be bought in their countries, and they have methods for doing it. And some of those are you know methods that work, and some of them are not so much methods that work. But it's not uh, an easy task, and it's not a task that government is inherently great at. It really is actually somewhat challenging. Uh, there'll be a lot of incentive to pick winners and to allow things that are. Um, backed by money rather than things that are safe or things that are, you know, justifiable on other grounds or whatever it is that you're trying to promote. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. It needs some thought, obviously. I mean, another modality of control that would be familiar to people thinking about either guns or even automobiles would be registration. Yeah. Right. So, right. You know, requiring a robot registration basically. Yeah. And I, I think there, you know, with things like drones, I mean, obviously these are things that are increasingly going to be, regulated and already are yeah i don't know what the rules are but there are some registration rules for drones it depends how high they go and stuff but if it's if it gets into airspace where it's faa airspace i think they do have rules so yeah i mean the the physical domain is uh just it's very viscerally frightening and and but also very has pretty different dynamics than than the digital domain so we'll have to just i guess see how that plays out yeah and this is just a genuinely new area in many ways i think because really until you know 20 or so years ago there was very hard separation between the digital world and the physical world i mean um there was the possibility for computer systems to launch missiles i guess and that was dramatized in a in a movie and uh you know to take down a power plant or something but for the most part uh, things that happened with data just affected data and things that happened in the real world did not have to worry about automation and computers uh, and those dynamics of automation and computers uh, affecting them. But uh, with the coming of autonomous vehicles and with the improvement of, of machine learning, uh, we can see that computers are, are heading into our physical world in like a big way. And we have to really think about that and make sure that that is a benefit and not a net um, 
harm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's so many wonderful things it can do. We should do it. We definitely should do it, but we need to think about it and do it well. Okay, now let's talk about political security. Okay, so this is like a little bit less clear of a category. but It's I a little guess, bit, yeah, harder to define, but it does, there are interesting topics that fall under this in the paper. I feel like most of these things are actually digital security issues just playing out in the political arena, but not entirely. So let's, let's, let's. It's more like the, the nature of the crimes is political, right? You know, as opposed right. to like, like in the digital security, I mean, it's often we're thinking of people trying to steal a lot of money or like. Right. Or do industrial espionage. Yeah, exactly. Right. But now we're talking about, you know, crimes that might be digital, could even maybe be physical, but have, you know, political aims. Right. Political effects or political purposes. And I mean, this list, when I was reading it, basically just felt like a laundry list of things that are all, you know, very much in people's minds because they're all in the news right now. Right. right, Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of what they're talking about is like fake news and stuff like that. So let's get into what this what this is. Well, you brought up fake news. So fine. (laughs) Realistic fake news, enhanced fake news. Basically, this is a topic we've really already covered a lot, so we won't spend too much time on it. Right. But, uh, you know, the idea that you could make a completely fake video of a world leader saying something they never said and circulate that on the Internet. Or personalize it for each person you send it to. Yeah. I mean, it can be really detailed and uh, targeted. Right. Well, the targeting is, is you know, almost a like another angle, right? So there's the super hyper personalized disinformation campaign, right? Which could be paired with the fake news or not, right? I mean, those things can exist separately, but those are two different political threats. Right. And in the scenario they mentioned in this section, right, they sort of have a guy who is being fed false information that's sort of inflaming his passions, and it is all targeted specifically to him and his concerns. Sure. And this is like, I mean, again, this is what's in the news with, uh, say, Cambridge Analytica and sure. s- in the sense that this is what they're claiming to do. Well, sort of, you know, half the time they're claiming it and half the time they're not claiming it, right? Depending on who they're talking to. Right. If they're talking to authorities, they're not doing any of this, you know. Right. And if they're, you know, talking to people they were trying to market to in the past, they're claiming they can do all of it. Right. But uh, the sort of hyper-personalized... Uh, disinformation campaign, yeah, where you pull people's information. It's a lot like the the spear phishing that we were talking about earlier. I mean, you basically take uh, publicly available information on people and use that to automate the creation of content um, or ways to reach out to that person that are, you know, tailored to them, you know, to get the result you want. Right, exactly. And this also would expand the techniques that, like, um, they use to recruit um, extremists, you know, that sort of thing. So that's very labor intensive right now, but they could, this could make it far less labor intensive. And now, I, yeah. Now I do, even though they're both in the news today, I do really want to separate those two things. Cause I think like, like the fake news thing and yeah. the, and the, the personalized disinformation, right? I guess disinformation is complicating it. Let me see like personalized persuasion. Let's separate that from fake news, right? Okay. Because you could be personalizing your persuasion, your messages. It doesn't have to use fake It doesn't news. have to be fake per se. Right. And it doesn't have to be news. It doesn't have to be either of those things. That's just one tool in the toolbox. Yeah, thing. exactly. Right, right. Um, and because yeah. I'm interested in both of those things separately and right. what, they, what they mean. So like, for example, the personalized persuasion is interesting. I mean, the context in which this comes up usually is in, in terms of like the functioning of democracy, right? I've and, heard of this. Yeah. I mean, and, and 
the idea, as I understand it, is we're supposed to have this sort of like, you know, open competition of persuasion so that, you know, the the person that's in charge or the people, the faction that's in charge are the ones that were not necessarily the physically strongest, as things might have been in the past, but the ones that were the most persuasive, right? Right. And that's kind of the hope, right? Or that's, that, isn't that roughly the idea of democracy? Uh, sure. That's what I've heard that it's about. Yes. So it's like fundamental to the idea of democracy is that like persuasion is a thing and persuasion is part of the process, right? So we don't want to like get rid of persuasion, but there is like a level of automated persuasion that feels exploitative and creepy and wrong. And it's like, it's sort of an interesting philosophical question to delineate that where that boundary is. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, right. Like what, when is it persuasion and when is it like mind control? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we've like propaganda is something that we've, you know, been living with for a long time. I mean, this is a very old tool of persuasion, but one that feels uh, problematic, right? Right. But propaganda is also sort of a propagandistic term for something that we also call like advertising when we don't want to denigrate it. Exactly. Right. So on a certain level, like, we live with we live with a, a kind of persuasion that we totally accept all the time. But if you try to use that same technique to uh, you know promote Nazism or something that we have all decided is is taboo, well then it's propaganda. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's it's tricky because obviously, yeah, we we do want persuasion in the world, but there is some there is some like far future point that you can imagine where people are literally like pressing a button and making you think something that's clearly unethical. Right. And then you can sort of roll back from there. What's the, where's the point where it crosses the line? Yeah, exactly. I think it's, you know, I think it's somehow like the scale of it. That's creepy. And again, actually the automated impersonal nature of it. Um, that make it worse. Again, if you imagine someone going door to door and personally persuading people, it, even if they're using kind of manipulative salesman tactics as they do it, if they do it door to door, face to face, it feels well, better. Right. The limit there is then that their time. Is yeah. And, and I think maybe right. that's, the, and when you say limit, I think that actually points to what the actual issue is, right? Which is the scale and specifically like asymmetry of access. Like even when you say propaganda, yes it implies persuasion that we don't like, but it also it tends to imply like a strong, powerful actor that has more access and ability to get their message out than other actors, right? Usually often, right, like a state or a big company or something. Exactly. Right. Um and you know, th- obviously this is why like campaign finance law is a concern for people and things because yes, persuasion is okay, but if you have 10 times the persuasion reach that I do, that's not really a fair competition of persuasion of the sort that we, we want to have. Right. Arguably. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think right. that we're inevitably going to live in a world where tons of very advanced AI enhanced persuasion is coming at us all the time. Um, if it's sort of coming from this sort of broad soup of different factions that are competing for our attention, to me, that just feels like, sort of the future of democracy, whether we like it or not. Um, I think it becomes more clearly problematic when you have specific, uh, like, entities that basically get to have the only 
like clear word out there, right? Right. Like, like right. only their message is out. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I guess for me, the line feels like it comes from what is, like, how effective it is, honestly. I almost feel like even, like, an AI that is very targeted and very personal um, in its persuasive uh, attempts, if it's not super effective, like, I think you know, the rough numbers are something like a third of, of advertising seems to work, you know, these days. Um, that's pretty rough, but that's what I've heard before. If it's still coming in, in that sort of realm, then I feel like, yeah, but the more effective it gets, the creepier it seems, the more it seems like it's making me do things against my will or something. Now, again, if we parse out the the fake part of this right and we say that every all the persuasion coming at you in in just a hypothetical example right is using true information it's just being sure. persuasive sure right but it's extremely effective at convincing people like like way more effective than a person would ever be because it's so personalized so tuned you. yeah 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 um it's like as good as your best friend or your whoever knows you best I don't know, like, to me, I guess it does, it crosses a line if it, if there's sort of like, almost based upon what happens in the future. It's like, if it persuades me of something that in the future I regret, right? Or like something, like it persuades me in the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the way like you might get persuaded by a salesman to buy something that then literally only like the next day you're like, oh man. Yeah, like, like why did I buy that? Like yeah. your better version of yourself that wasn't in the moment, like wouldn't have made the choice, but you are just like so caught up in the persuasion, right? That crosses a line for me, I think. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I think even if I'm totally satisfied with every purchase though, if it's like, 90% effective or something that still creeps me out just because it has that power over you just the fact of just that. I just don't trust anymore that I even like what I like I don't even trust that I know what I like anymore at that point like yeah but then that's just a concern about you know, like free will and whether yeah, democracy just, even works that puts right? me into a whole existential <laughs> crisis that's like I don't want any systems in my world that force me into existential crisis every day but see that's why i'm trying to draw a line in a different place right because i feel like if i if i just problematize the idea that something is good at persuading me is wrong then i feel like that's basically a worldview that assumes that i have no free will and that like democracy is sort of a illusion anyways yeah like, I, I don't really yeah. want to accept that view yeah so i'm trying to draw a different line yeah that preserves these things i care about no no i think you're right but yeah i'm just saying that there, there is a threshold of how good this thing would have to be it's pretty high but maybe in the like high 80s low 90s range where like yeah if it's that good then it then it fundamentally alters my view of my own ability to have free will right and then i you know then I might want to shield myself from it just to preserve my uh, illusions. Um. <laughs> now, now, anyways, mo- mo- moving out of that philosophical territory, I mean, it's a lot easier th- with the fake stuff, right? And obviously, to be honest, I would assume that most of these personalized campaigns uh, will probably use some amount of fakery as well. I mean, those things... Sure, and I mean, that I- crosses a different line because that's just lying to you. Yeah, I mean, once you're lying, I mean, that that's pretty easy to say that right. that's a bad thing and um you know since we did do our episode about specifically that issue of fakeable audio and video there's been these like 
these deep fakes thing deep fakes have oh, appeared yes. like this wasn't around like literally until like a week after we did our episode i was not aware of it if it was but yeah we got alerted to this and there's some um, controversy over these pretty high quality fake porn things that are being made yeah as as with many technologies like the first use case is porn yeah but and, uh it's it's obviously like a broader technology than that and i i mean this is technology where i don't know exactly what all the inputs are but it's something like they they film with a lookalike and then they use technology to like plaster the face of a celebrity of a celebrity person yeah. on the lookalike uh, so that the porn appears to be, you know, uh, a famous person having sex. And I think the idea is with a Google image search of a famous person, there's just enough data out there of that you can like train these algorithms. You can create a good like facial model. I, although to be honest, I don't know exactly how this works, but, um, John, we all know that you're secretly making deep fakes. I'm not making them. No. (laughs) Protesting too much. Yeah. No, I mean, I I, I am only vaguely aware of this, but it is, um, you know, it's an evolution of existing sort of fake porn technologies that have been around for a while, um, but really moving into high quality video in a big way, which I don't think they had done before. But again, the technology starts with porn, but it's really not not ultimately going to be about that. I mean, this is something that can be repurposed for political aims, obviously, just as easily. Yeah, um, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, imagine, uh, you know, you could use it to screw with a country's uh, foreign policy or who knows what. All right. So uh, real quickly, let's go through a few more of the political concerns before we, we wrap up the podcast. Okay. Um, so a couple other things that... Uh, were discussed as scenarios in in the paper was sort of automated influence campaigns and and the difference between this um, and what we talked about previously is that you're targeting or identifying using AI like influencers in particular social groups. Basically, this is a known marketing strategy. Yes. Right. But you're basically automating this and you're using it, putting it to political ends. Right. So the limit fa- here is that right now it's hard. You need a human being to actually identify who the influencers are because that's a little hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. And you could use the computer to just generate you a list, and that could be kind of and instant. then pair that with the other technology of then personalizing a reaching out to that influencer once right. you've identified them. So then, right? So then you're targeting these influencers directly, uh, which are the most high value people to target, right? Um, Another thing that's talked about, this is not a, this is more of an authoritarian than a democracy problem, but basically automating uh, surveillance, using that to suppress dissent in a very calculated way. Um, surveillance is already super easy now, as we've talked about. Yeah. But what we've also talked about in the past when we discussed the end of privacy is that something that you need to pair with your surveillance technology to make it truly effective is the ability to comb through tons of data and actually find the things of interest because literally just stockpiling footage endlessly on its own isn't really all that helpful. No, it's kind of the opposite of helpful. Yeah. Creating work for yourself. But yeah, if you have these technologies to go through it for you, then all of a sudden... If you have AI that can like... And again, the story that's in the paper is, you know, involves sort of like, you know, recognizing ahead of time somebody who's, you know posting online political opinions and maybe like ordered some of the things that they would need to build a protest sign to go protest that weekend. And then they get arrested on Friday before they can go do it. Right. Right. Yeah. And that story is interesting because it's sort of written to make it purposely ambiguous, whether he was like just a totally like uh, innocent protester or whether he was going to, 
make some violence or something. They kind of make it a little ambiguous. They buy some smoke bombs or something. But it's um, it's similar to an idea we've talked about before, this sort of, sort of terror fraud alert idea, this idea that like something similar to a credit card fraud alert might be deployed to um, determine potential security risks, you know, before they act. Sure. And, and that, yeah. And that that can lead to a sort of minority report type situation where the, you know, uh, like in this story, the guy gets arrested before he's even done anything. Right. In a free society, they maybe they just follow him and wait for him to do something that they could arrest him on. But uh, I think that that's a really interesting, um, not malicious use of AI, but just use of state power, you know, that I could see happening in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's quite frightening. Although, again, it depends on due process and how it's implemented. But yeah, there's a lot of in bad some senses. The, the real problem is authoritarianism more than the problem is the technology per se. But it does enable authoritarian regimes to do worse things more effectively. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So we could expect at least somewhere it will be tried, uh, which is which is terrifying. Um, so you brought up terrorism, right? So there's obviously the use. The positive use case, one could say, of preventing terrorist acts by recognizing them with AI and paired with surveillance. That's mm-hmm. something that you might even want to see in a in a non-authoritarian free society that's yeah. actually doing a good job policing. Yeah. And the arguments for that are going to be, like we said, so strong, yeah. I think, because the destructive power is so large. But on the other side, you can use the sort of personalized, automated social engineering techniques to maybe... Uh, find people who want to commit acts of terrorism. Ah, uh, yes, recruiting. Find depressed people that are vulnerable to particular arguments. Right. Um, and basically automate the, yeah, the recruitment and maybe even the instruction uh, and deployment of those people while also like really, you know, separating yourself from them in a way that might, you know, protect yourself as sort of the head of a terrorist or like operation. Right, right. It's just this autonomous bit of software that's building an army out there for you, but doesn't tie back to you in any direct way. Yeah. So, you know, oh, that's that one a, won't that's make a you plot. sleep well at night. Yeah. yeah, that's a plot to like a to like a, a a thriller. I like that. Um one that I don't want to talk about too much cuz it's honestly too big a topic, but it's just like platforms themselves, right, have the ability and and also authoritarian governments have the ability to just, you know, filter what you even see, derank things. I mean, but this is... An- right. You may have heard they got rid of net neutrality recently. Yeah, so yeah. Comcast could be doing this to you right now. Who knows? This is an old problem. I mean, AI maybe makes this more effective, but I mean, we, we already live in this world where this is a concern. So. Yeah, you can do this without AI. Yeah. So uh, don't do it, please. And the last thing I have here is uh, denial of information attacks. So everyone uh, heard us talk about earlier about a denial of service attack, right? Um, so they know what that is. But a denial of information attack in this paper is described as, you know, basically swamping a service with noise. and Oh, like with, giving a dummy data so that it is doesn't have information inside it? Is that the idea? Well... Uh, yeah, I guess on like that's one way it could go, or just like putting flooding so much. Again, we're talking in a political context now, right? Putting so much information out there that you really can't even find the true stuff. Oh in, in, the, in the giant. Okay, right, rest. right. It's like the uh, the Borges story about the uh, the uh, 
the infinite library that has every book, but also every mistake that's ever been in every book. Right. Imagine you're not pushing a particular agenda <laughs> with your fake news. Right. You're pushing all agendas all the time. It's like every permutation yeah. of an opinion you this can have. Like, this is like how the Joker would do uh, fake news. He'd just want pure chaos. Or it's like the infinite probability drive from Hitchhiker's Guide, right? right. It's just like every right. every possible political opinion candidate scandal thing that could occur has been generated by this algorithm and has been dumped out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's terrifying because that like puts us in a Philip K. Dick world where we don't know what's real. Um, or well, like a Soviet Russia, sort of same idea. Well, and that that whole like larger concern about like tr- whether you can trust what you see, obviously, um, you know, could be a big threat, and you know, could enable authoritarianism, and like that's a this is kind of a hot topic right now. So I mean, I'm sure people you can hear about this other places than here. Yeah, this, yeah. I was just thinking like the idea of future of trust is maybe interesting for us to come back to sometime. Oh, absolutely. That is a good idea. That might uh that might tie into some of the crypto stuff that the the fans want us to talk about too. What is we got to wrap this up. Yeah, let's do it. Uh this was a really fun paper and uh we'll put a link to it. You should definitely read it. Um before we do that, I want to do like a uh, before we sign off, I want to do just a little bit of uh housekeeping. Yeah, absolutely. We we said a while back, I don't know how many episodes ago, um, that uh, we were going to up our output for a little while and then that eventually we would have to uh, slow down a bit. Right. So I, I kind of called it a season. That was a, I was using that term loosely, but basically we have come to the end of this period of rapid output. Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback that we've been getting this uh, six months or so. And we are not completely... Uh, gonna go dark so don't take us out of your feeds um, we will make a few more episodes this year but the, we're gonna go from frequent output to sort of sporadic for the rest of the year and we have some good ideas for episodes too so I mean look forward to those but yeah it's just not gonna be the same pace I think they might be uh, more of the more deeply researched ones that we used to do more of but uh, they're not gonna be coming out so frequently uh, from now until the end of the year well done I do a couple of things in our personal lives. Uh, but we hope to come back next year really strong uh, with a new uh, batch of stuff. And in the meantime, we will be, like I said, putting out a few pieces. Also, we've been telling you about uh, our graphic novel, Let Go. It is still being released this summer. We will definitely uh, pop back into your feed to let you know when it is officially available. But you can pre-order it now on Amazon if you go to letgocomic.com. And this is a comic book that deals with, I mean, all the themes that we like to discuss here on this show. It's about, you know, a family grappling with technology in a near future world. So I think if you if you enjoy our podcast, there's a good chance you'll enjoy the book. That is exactly right. So thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. Subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.